There's a new prime minister in Israel and a new president in Iran. But is anyone in Washington paying attention? Plus, Joe Biden hasn't been president for six months, but would-be contenders for the 2024 Republican nomination are already making moves. Our special guest, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 18 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Uh, Jared, I'm thinking this is season three, uh, season opener, so we're going to call it that. I'm Rich Goldberg, your host, alongside... I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, two big news items out of the Middle East over the last couple of weeks. First, a new prime minister in Israel, Naftali Bennett, taking the reins of power with an incredibly diverse but fragile, razor-thin governing majority in the Knesset. Bibi Netanyahu, finally ousted after 12 years as prime minister, is now settling in as leader of the opposition. Lahavdil, as we might say uh, in the Jewish uh, community, the Islamic Republic of Iran holding more of a selection than an election, with the supreme leader installing a possible successor uh, in Ibrahim Raisi as the new president of Iran. Raisi, just for those who may not know, under U.S. sanctions today, responsible for sending thousands of Iranians to their deaths in 1988, 2009 uh, at the Green Revolution, and over the last couple of years as head of Iran's judiciary, a Torquemada of our times, if you will. The question I have for you, Jared, will this change anything for Democrats in Washington, either when it comes to the politics of Israel or the politics of the Iran nuclear deal? A a reset is what was needed in the U.S.-Israel relationship, particularly as it relates to the Israeli right and the American left. I think what bothered Democrats more than anything about Bibi Netanyahu were not necessarily his policies, but his lack of predictability predictability and his appetite to make a deal with pretty much whoever was was most expedient. I, for one, believe it's about Bennett and his ideology and uh, just knowing where he stands and being able to deal, even if we aren't always ideologically aligned between the Israeli government in power and the American government in power. Listen, my take is Democrats have said, oh, we're not anti-Israel, we're just anti-Netanyahu. And I'm not saying all Democrats, obviously, Jared, but some Democrats who I perceive to be anti-Israel, that's what they hide behind. So here we are, no more Netanyahu, no more Bibi to hide behind, a very diverse government, Arabs sitting in the government for the first time in Israeli history. Uh, And this government is just as dedicated to stopping the Iran nuclear deal as the Netanyahu government was. So I guess the question... The question then is, when you look across uh, the Middle East at Raisi becoming president in Iran and a new government in Israel, if I'm Joe Biden, Raisi stood up at his first press conference and said, we will never negotiate a longer and stronger deal. We'll never negotiate over missiles and terrorism. Even this new government in Israel says, don't go back into the Iran deal. I have to ask you, why can't the Biden administration simply say, you know what? Let's not go back into the Iran deal. Let's choose another path. But that that's the thing, Rich. What is another path, right? I think the Biden administration is making every attempt at a diplomatic solution to this crisis, and they're trying to avoid a regional war and potentially a global war if uh, if if other players get involved. I think that 
the goals here are the same. There may be different tactics, but the Biden administration is not ready to give up on a diplomatic solution. And it seems like Republicans are. Uh, I can't understand how somebody says, I fully support the security of the state of Israel, I'm with Israel, I will defend Israel, and I want to give billions of dollars to the government, the regime that wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, that is funding militias, terrorist groups to do that, that's building missiles to do that. If the JCPOA actually stopped Iran's nuclear program, you would have a very strong case. Unfortunately, it does not. It's time for something different. That something different is listen to your allies in the Middle East isolate, put pressure, and make the regime choose between its own collapse and something much better than the JCPOA. We can argue about this all day long, but we do have a special guest. The 2024 presidential election is still more than 1,200 days away, but names of would-be GOP nominees already being floated. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is one of those names, also coming out with a new book. He joins us today on Limited Liability Podcast. Governor Christie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Richard, my pleasure. How are you? Uh, we're doing great. We're doing great. Listen, the top news of the week is out there. We have to start with this. There is going to be a new Sopranos prequel movie. The trailer is out. America wants to know what does Chris Christie have to say about it? Great. Great news. I love The Sopranos. One of the great shows of all time. And, you know, look, anything that features New Jersey, except for the Jersey Shore, on a show, I'll take. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. There it is. It's the headline. No, but seriously, uh, big top news of the week, uh, besides the prequel, President Biden uh, ordering airstrikes on three facilities along the Iraq-Syria border in response to escalating UAV strikes against American interests by Iran-backed militias. Uh, your initial reaction to what you've seen so far from the news? Well, look, I, I think the president is is doing the right thing here. Um, and you know, I've not been a fan so far of Joe Biden's, um, foreign policy, but in this instance, I think he's doing the right thing. Um, and, and I, and I really believe that, um, it seems like every democratic president who's come in of late comes in with this idea that somehow, um, they don't have to be as close to Israel as, as the Republican president has been. They don't have to support Israel in the same way, even though they give lip service to it. Um, and, and I hope that what Joe Biden's going to recognize over the course of time, now that, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is not there, who, you know, Democratic politicians used as a boogeyman because of his closeness to Republicans. I hope that that gets the politics away from it and they get back to the simple fact that, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East and our best ally. And I think every type of strength we can show in the Middle East against um, the terrorist groups that not only attack Israel, but attack other folks in the Middle East um, is something that's positive for us to do. We need to show resolve in that regard. And obviously, while this is all unfolding, the Biden administration sitting in Vienna, they're negotiating indirectly with the Iranians, trying to go back into that 2015 nuclear deal. Very controversial. Obama made the deal 2015. Trump pulled out of the deal 2018. Here we are, 2021, a Democratic president trying to go back in. You have congressional Republicans saying, no matter what he does, we're going to try to get out of the deal again, reimpose sanctions. Where do you come down on the Iran nuclear deal? I think the Iran nuclear deal is a bad deal. And and it was a bad deal because it didn't deal with their missile technology. It's a bad deal because it didn't deal with their, the rest of their behavior in the region. It's a bad deal 
because it gave them back so much of their money, which they're using now to fund the very groups that you were just talking about in your first question. Um, that makes it a bad deal. And by the way, sanctions were working against them. And you saw in Iran um, uprisings beginning uh, for those who were opposed to um, the uh, Islamist uh, government. Uh, and we needed to give that time to continue to play out. Uh, so I think it was a bad move by President Biden. I think, unfortunately, unfortunately because of the far left wing of his party, the, the president wants to just do everything opposite of what Donald Trump did. And, you know, Donald Trump wasn't wrong about everything. So, you know, maybe it's time for him to, you know, reflect upon this based upon the quality of the policies. And the fact that John Kerry is anywhere near any of this, anywhere near within 10 miles of the White House, makes me increasingly nervous. Governor, uh, just to follow up on that, and I promise you we will come back to former President Trump in a little bit. Do you think when the Iran nuclear deal was signed that there was a better deal to be had given the state of the other players in the negotiation in the P5 plus one? Yeah, well, uh, uh, no deal is better than a bad deal, Jared. And and they needed the United States, too. We are the indispensable party, and we were the indispensable party in there. And I think that China, Russia... And so our European friends were much more concerned about the economics than they were concerned about that. This is one of the reasons why, you know, our independence on uh, with oil and natural gas um, allow us to take a much harder position. Um, they're much more dependent upon Middle Eastern oil and, and, and natural resources um, to be able to continue to, you know, run their economies. And so I understand the different pushes and pulls, but I think no deal is better than a bad deal. You know, th- 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 Jared, I- I'd have to to point out there there is some incredible irony that the administration's policy today is to be against American-made energy, but for Iranian-made energy by lifting oil sanctions on Iran. That 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 seems a little off to me. Uh, but 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 I do have one question, uh, Governor, and then Jared, I think yeah, I'm cutting you off a little bit, but come back. It's okay, uh, I'm used c- to it. C- congressional <laughs> Republicans uh, say that uh, if. Biden does go back into the deal, which seems likely lifts the sanctions to the minute there's Republican control of the White House again, they want to see the sanctions reimposed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would, for the reasons that I talked about before. But there also comes a point where we've got to have some consistent foreign policy that doesn't change um, on big, important issues like Iran every time the White House changes. And so I have some concern about that. But it's look, to me, the idea of Iran being able to be making the money that they will make and what they will use that money for, um, especially now with their new president, who is probably the most radical Iranian president in the past decade. Um, this is not good news. And, uh, and I, I think it's a problem. And I think President Biden's making a mistake. Remember what Bob Gates said about Joe Biden, who worked for both Republican and Democratic presidents, that on every major foreign policy issue of the last 20 years, Joe Biden's been wrong. Um, so I, I, don't, I doubt that he's going to end that streak anytime soon. So, Governor, you alluded a minute ago to the change in administrations in Israel uh, offering an opportunity for a reset of U.S.-Israel relations. We had former Ambassador Ron Dermer on a couple of weeks ago talking about the sort of inside baseball that went into the speech by the prime minister at the Capitol uh, to oppose the Iranian nuclear deal. And I guess my question is for you, as someone who's been very bipartisan over over the course of his career, um, would you have sort of had it go down that way? Uh, and, and we heard Ambassador Dermer tell us that 
the Israeli the Israeli side never gave a heads up to the White House, and that Speaker Boehner actually told them he'd handle it. What do you make of all that? And you know this concept that we used to have that politics sort of ended at the water's edge, uh, which. I think, in my mind, was a really key moment that started this fracture that maybe had been brewing for a while in U.S.-Israel relations, particularly with Democrats. Well, look, there there are any number of instances where I could say to you that I think that um, Prime Minister Netanyahu could have handled certain things in his relations with the United States more deftly. Now, I agree with a lot of the policy positions he ultimately took, but I'm talking about how he handled the relationship. And by the way, so could Barack Obama have handled that relationship better. Um, in the end, I think that foreign policy um, is about two, two ideas, the principles that you share and the relationship of the principles. <laughs> ELS on the first one, ALS on the second. And, um, you know, so to me, um, you know, that's where Netanyahu at times, um, was not uh, as deft as he could have been. And Obama, um, I think President Obama, was not, uh, was not nearly the supporter of Israel that he should have been. And you're seeing in a lot of the, the House Democrats that same type of approach. And I want to know from them, they really think that the world would be a better place if Israel were weakened, that the Middle East would be more peaceful if Israel was weakened? I doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I bet you if you talk to Jordan privately, the Saudis privately, the Emiratis privately, they don't want to weaken Israel either. Because guess what? All of them are afraid of the same thing, Iran. Well, that's a great segue. Uh, you talk about the Emiratis and, and the Gulf and other Arab nations. The Abraham Accords, obviously, last year upended this conventional wisdom that we had in Washington for years that Arab-Israeli peace couldn't happen until the Palestinians had an independent state. It does seem a little bit that the Biden administration sort of falling back into that old way of thinking. You've seen them restart the funding to UNRWA that the Trump administration had cut off. They restarted funding to West Bank Gaza programs, even though there's a law in place that that shouldn't be happening until the Palestinians and their pay to slay program. Uh, how do you see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today in the broader context of what's going on in the Middle East? I think it's becoming less relevant, Richard. Um, I, I think that many of the other Gulf countries are saying, look, uh, the, the, the Palestinians aren't able to say yes. <laughs> you know, they're absolutely unable to say yes. I think that the Israelis have offered them a number of deals that, that should have been acceptable to them and, and aren't because they just don't want to say yes. And they want the conflict to continue. And, you know, I, I think that, frankly, you know, other Gulf countries are looking at this and saying to themselves, we have economic interests, we have diplomatic interests, we have national security interests that are best served by being um, at peace with Israel. And we're going to stop Sub, you know, subjugating all of our national interests to the Palestinians' interests. So I think it will always be relevant, but I think it is less relevant today than it has been in the last 25 to 30 years. Governor, I wanted to shift gears a little bit uh, and ask you about your relationship with former President Trump. 
Um, you have historically been known as one of the most straight-talking members of your party. Uh, you famously, on a number of occasions, put common sense and getting the job done ahead of partisanship, sometimes to your own detriment. Um, yeah. But yet you uh, supported President Trump for election, supported him for re-election, and I, I guess, what changed or did anything change uh, from one to the other? No, nothing changed, Jared. I mean, look, Let's start off with the, the the very clear statement that I didn't want Donald Trump to be president. I wanted to be president. My rant got <laughs> Fair enough. You got, you got the easiest get out of jail. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's great. Yeah, I like <laughs> that. Know, all these other people who sit around the sidelines carping, I, I got in on the stage and ran against him. Um, it didn't work out. And so then my the choice I was left with was Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Well, to me, I'm picking Donald Trump. And the policies that he pursued in the main, not all of them, but the policies he pursued in the main um, are ones that I support. And that's why I supported him in 2020 against Joe Biden. Now, do I like Joe Biden a little bit more than I like Hillary Clinton? Yes, I do. I've known Joe Biden for 35 years. We both went to the University of Delaware. We've known each other from sitting at Delaware football games together over the years. And I, and I think Joe Biden is a good man. I really do. Um, I don't have anything bad to say about Joe Biden personally, but he has become a captive of the left wing of his party, and he's not the same guy that I knew 20 years ago, um, let alone 35 years ago. And so, again, I was confronted. You know, I say to people all the time, American democracy is not about um, getting to pick your favorite. It's getting to pick from who's left. And it was Donald Trump and Joe Biden. In that instance, I, I, I voted for Donald Trump and, and helped him. So... I think I'm still being the same pragmatic conservative I've always been, which is the principles are the most important thing. And I'm going to vote for the principles above any individual person. And when you compare the principles of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden versus the policy principles of Donald Trump, that's why I was with Donald Trump. But I, but Jack, to be clear, as you know, both when I was in office and when I left office, since I've left office and been with ABC, when I've disagreed with the president, I've said so publicly, um, and and I'll continue to because that's who I am. Well, and Governor, to that point, uh, you know, as a former uh, senior law enforcement official, you were you were a U.S. attorney. Uh, one of the most sacred duties in our our law enforcement system is that of the U.S. attorney. What is your take on what happened at the Capitol on January sixth, and what, if anything, does it say about? some of the Republican base. I mean, we talked, we talk a lot on the show about what's going on on the left side of the democratic party as we should. Uh, but what is, tell us about January 6th and what do you think it means, if anything to the, to about the Republican base? January 6th was an awful moment, um, in our country's history. Um, and something that as I was watching it, I couldn't believe that I was seeing what I was seeing. Um, I think that what it says is, and I said this at the time, that the president ginned this up over the course of months, not on January 6th, but going all the way back to the summer of 2020 when he was talking about the election being stolen. Um, and and I and look, I've said this all along. Bill Barr has now said this publicly in the last couple of days. There's just no evidence of it. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many really smart people I have who come up to me and say they believe the election was stolen. And I say, where was it stolen? Pennsylvania and Michigan. Okay. I said, where'd they steal it in Pennsylvania? Philadelphia. All right. Do you know that the president got a higher percentage of the vote in Philadelphia in 2020 than he did in 2016? 
Oh, we didn't know that. Not just more votes, because more people voted, but a higher percentage of the vote. He lost Pennsylvania in the collar counties outside Philadelphia. He lost it by 100,000 votes more this time than he did to Hillary Clinton in 2016, and he lost Pennsylvania by 80,000 votes. There's your ballgame. Michigan, he got a higher percentage of votes in Detroit than he did in 2016. In fact, Joe Biden got 1,000 less votes than Hillary Clinton did in the city of Detroit. So please, like, look, if, if they showed me evidence that this election was stolen, I would have been right up there fighting with others to make sure that we got an honest election result. There's no evidence to prove it. And so when you continue to say it, though, and you're the president who's continued to say it, you're going to gin people up. And then once you gin them up, you can't control it even if you want to. And, and that's what January 6th turned out to be was people who came to the Capitol uh, grounds angry, who were then ginned up by some speeches outside the White House. But I think that feud was already lit even before those speeches. And those people went up to Capitol Hill and and created mayhem. And that's just unacceptable. Unacceptable that the president played any role in that. Governor, and just uh, do you think he was bears some responsibility for what happened on January 6th? Of course. Of course, it's just what I said. No responsibility was begun to be born, Jared, in the summer of 2020. See, what what I disagree with people on is two principal issues when we talk about um, January 6th. One, that it was the speeches on January 6th that incited the crowds. No, it wasn't. Those crowds came there angry and convinced that the election had been stolen. Second, that somehow January 6th is proof of the weakness of our democracy. In fact, it is proof of the strength of our democracy, in my view, because by 4 a.m. that next morning, every member of the House and Senate were back on the floor doing the job they were elected to do and confirm the election of Joe Biden. That shows you how resilient our democracy is, how strong it is, and that even though there were people on that floor that disagreed, that's fine. That's part of democracy. They get to vote and say they thought the election was stolen. I disagree with them, but at least they were there, as were the others, and they did their job, including the vice president. So that shows the strength of our democracy and and this whole thing that our, our democracy was under threat. I never felt our democracy was under threat. I felt the lives of individuals in our democracy was under threat. And that was the real threat of January 6th. I never felt like American democracy was not going to do the right thing. And the right thing was to follow the evidence. And the evidence was that Joe Biden won the election. Governor, I want to come back to something you talked about when you mentioned the Philadelphia suburbs and the election result. When you look forward now to the 2022 uh, midterm cycle and also to 2024 for the presidential cycle, what do Republicans need to do differently to win? And and will Donald Trump still play some sort of role in 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 that framework? Well, of course, the president, the former president will play some kind of role. Um he he's obviously wants to do that. And there are lots of places in the country where him playing a role will be very positive for the Republican Party. Um, but what we need to be doing is talking about tomorrow and not yesterday. Losing parties look backwards. Winning parties look through the windshield. They look forward. And we need to articulate our counter vision to what, by that time, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will have been doing for nearly two years. And if we're not articulating that vision, we're not going to win. If we're talking about how things got stolen from us in 2020 and how wrong are the wrong, that's ancient history. 
Here's what I know, Richard. I don't know everything that happened in every election district in every state in 2020. But I do know that Joe Biden won a majority of the vote. He won a majority of the electoral vote. He's sitting in the White House. He's signing executive orders. He's addressing joint sessions of Congress. He's the president of the United States. And Donald Trump's not going to be reinstated in August or September or any time between now and January of 2025. So we have to stop talking about that crap. And we have to start talking about the issues that matter to the American people and why our ideas are better than the Democrats' ideas. By the way, I agree with you 100%. Rich, you can put that in the logbook somewhere. Um, Look at that. You know, so so if, you, if you're ready to announce your own presidential bid, you have the first donor here, Jared Bernstein. It's wonderful. <laughs> but, but, Governor, I guess my question, uh, you know, I, I believe all that, but w- how do you square that with what's going on in the Congress where, you know, a tried and true Republican in Liz Cheney, right? She will never be confused for, you know, uh, getting a majority in my, my assembly district in Brooklyn, right? She gets purged from the party leadership solely on her non, uh, allegiance to Donald Trump. I mean, uh, what, what are, what are Republicans in the house and Senate thinking? Well, I disagree with you on that. Let me tell you why I think she's out of leadership. Remember, she said all the things she said, and they had a first vote, and she was kept. Then she kept saying it over and over and over. Enough. You're on the record. We heard you. Anybody thinks that, that Liz Cheney supports Donald Trump after the first set of statements? You think anybody thinks that she thinks that what happened on January 6th was okay? Do you think anybody thinks that Liz, that Liz Cheney thinks that Donald Trump actually won the election? Let me tell you what I think. I think Liz Cheney wanted out of leadership. I think she didn't like it anymore. And when she won that vote the first time, she said, oh, God, that didn't work. Okay, let me keep saying it. And then finally, they were like, look, you can't keep talking about this stuff. We don't want to talk about it. We want to talk about what the Democrats are doing. Stop. She kept going. Okay, you're out. I mean, so I would disagree with the premise of your question that when she expressed herself, as she has every right to do um, on the issues that we're talking about, they had a leadership vote and she won by more than three to one in the Republican caucus. But if you're going to continue to, you know, I had somebody who said to me, um, who was offering me a position um, on a board of directors one time, they said, look, there's two requirements for being on this board of directors. You must always tell me the truth, even if I disagree with it. And the second point was, and don't be a pain in the rear end. Right? (laughs) The two things can coexist. I can tell you the truth. And if the leadership says, okay, we hear you, we support your right to say it, but we've heard it now enough. Let's move on to the other issues. And you go, no, no, no. I'd really like to continue to talk about the thing that you've asked me not to talk about anymore because it's not good for the party. Well, then you don't want to be in leadership. And so I, I you know, I like Liz. I, I, I off uh, most of the time agree with Liz's policy positions, but enough already. Like, you know, you don't want to be in leadership. Don't be in leadership. Go to Wyoming, win your seat again, which I'm confident she will do. Um, and then she'll come back and she'll figure out the way she wants to assert herself in the party. My guess, knowing Liz Cheney, is she's got plans to do something else. I don't know what, but something else. And she'll she'll figure it out. The Cheney family has never been lacking either ambition or or cleverness. And I don't think she lost either of those genes 
from uh, from her mother or her father. Fair enough. Fair enough. Governor, I have one more, and then I know Rich has a few more questions for you, but Governor, you were uh, famously um, very ill with COVID. Um, great to see that you're doing well and, and recovered. Um, there was an article in the New York Times in the last week or 10 days that shows there's a direct correlation between vaccination rates and the results of presidential uh, voting. And uh, with with people who voted in areas that voted heavily for Donald Trump having some of the lowest vaccination rates and therefore some of the highest uh, COVID rates because they're they're unvaccinated Um, as somebody who is a Republican and, you know, a loyal member of the party, but who is very ill with COVID. What do you make of all this? And, and have we really uh, taken, you know, politicized an issue that ought not be politicized and it's going to ultimately cost people their lives. Yeah, look, I think that, that, that there's been, there were mistakes made. So let's talk about what the mistakes were, Jared, right? I think first, um, folks kept moving the moving the goalposts on this um, in the public health realm. And so people began to not believe, before the vaccines even came out, some advice that was being given by public health experts. And, and secondly, there are people out there, and I ran across this when I was governor, that are generally anti-vaccine, not just this vaccine, but any vaccine. There's a pretty significant anti-vaxxer movement out there. And, and, you know, New Jersey mandates more vaccines than any state in the country. And so I would hear from the anti-vaxxing people constantly when I was governor. Now, I'm, I'm a pro-vaccine person. I, my wife and I vaccinated our children with all of the required vaccines um, and, and, and our entire family has been vaccinated with um, either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. So, you know, but for some people, it's an anti-vaccine issue. Those generally tend to be more libertarian type folks, Jared. Um, so I think the lack of, of confidence in some areas of the country in the public health experts, the lack of confidence in vaccines in general contributes to it. And there has been a political element to it. But in this one, you can't blame on Donald Trump. You know, he's the guy who put all the money behind Operation Warp Speed. He came out very early and appropriately saying he had taken the vaccine and he encouraged others to take the vaccine, that he and Melania had both taken it. Um, He never really made any public statements that I'm aware of where he showed a lack of confidence in it. I can tell you, the last thing I'll say to you on this one is that I did a focus group with Frank Luntz um, with 30 people from around the country who were all Republicans, different ages and different areas and different types of Republicans, like traditional establishment Republicans, Trump Republicans, all of whom came onto the call saying that they would not take the vaccine. When I got done telling my story, um, almost half of them now said, okay, we're going to consider taking the vaccine. I also think that people have not gotten all the facts they need to get on it. And that I I say one thing, one of the folks said, he said, I want to be educated, not indoctrinated. And so he doesn't want people telling him conclusory things like you must take the vaccine because it's good for you and it's good for the general public. He wants to know the facts. And when he got educated with the facts, as I shared it with him and former um, CDC head, Dr. Uh, Tom Fredan did, uh, he was on that, that call as well. 
we got nearly half of those 30, 14 out of the 30, who said that they were going to get vaccinated. So I do think there's still hope for this. I think we just got to keep pushing. It's going to be a process. There is an element of politics to it, but I think it's much more not Republican Democratic politics, but libertarians, anti-vaxxers who also happen to vote voted for Donald Trump. I think it's not the Trump part that's pushing it. It's the other part and the fact that those people also happen to vote for Trump. Uh, Governor, I do want to come back to foreign policy a bit, but before I do, uh, you said something earlier we were building towards it as you were looking forward through the windshield uh, towards 2022, 2024, and you were talking about the need to focus on the issues, not on all all the stuff from the past. What are those issues in your view? What, what are the top issues Republicans should be running on? Well, first and foremost is education. I think we've all seen in the last 15, 16 months that our public education system was severely damaged by the COVID crisis and the actions that many governors took um, in the COVID crisis. And that public education has been set back and public education students have been set back. And, and that's not just at the K to 12 level. It's also at the, um, at the university level as well. Um, I had a child who went to a private Catholic school, a daughter. Um, she went to school in classroom last September and did the whole year with the exception of one week when there was a bit of an outbreak at her school where they did virtual. The rest of the time they were in the classroom and there was no, except for that one time of one week, there was no significant outbreak um, in the school. Uh, And if a child got it, that child was sent home and they quarantined for 14 days and did virtual learning and then came back. We didn't shut the whole school down. Um, I think that that's hurt. And what it's led to, because it's been led by the teachers union, because they didn't want to go back to work. Um, the, the fact is that um, they've it's now led them to have greater reign to do other things, like what's being taught in our classrooms. And I'll give you one example of this, Richard. Um, I live in a very Republican town in a very Republican county in New Jersey. Um, they do exist. And um, my um, niece who is in now the sixth grade, she was given a project. It was called the American dream myth or reality. Okay. seems like a reasonable essay to have to write. And they said, but you have to write your essay from the written materials that we give you. Every piece of written material that she was given supported myth, not reality. So my niece said, the heck with it. I think the American dreams are reality. So she writes American dream is a reality. And she gets a C on the paper. And when she goes to the teacher and says, why did I get a C? The teacher says to her, because you didn't write it from the materials I gave you. Now, look, I'm not someone who believes that we should ever um, whitewash the mistakes that America's made. America's made mistakes over time. But we have been much more of a force for good than for bad. And and, And our students should learn both. So they can make their own decisions. So I think education is a huge issue. Second, China. China is going to be our adversary for the next 80 years. We better get on understanding that they're an adversary and start taking much stronger steps towards winning that fight, but by, both by strengthening it ourselves and weakening the leadership in China. I think third, you know, inflation is going to wind up being a huge issue here, Richard. And, you know, Joe Biden, you saw that picture early in his presidency where he went to visit with Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter, he and Joe Biden. Let me tell you something. 
That picture is going to wind up being very prominent when, after 2022, we have a Jimmy Carter-like economy in this country where unemployment remains higher than it should and inflation winds up getting very high. Jimmy Carter's the guy in the 76 election who coined the phrase misery index, the combination of unemployment and inflation. I got a feeling that his buddy Joe Biden is going to be getting whacked around with the same misery index that Jimmy Carter created and which ultimately cost him his presidency. So we need to be talking about inflation and how we're going to create jobs and livable wages in a circumstance where inflation is running at a much, much higher rate, three, four, five times what we've been used to over the last really um, years since Reagan got us out of the inflation spiral in the mid 80s. We have not suffered significant inflation since then. So we're talking now about 35 years. That's going to be a big issue for us to be talking about as well. Governor, um, so he's too humble to mention it, but uh, my my co-host, Rich Goldberg, is a Navy reservist who who deployed to Afghanistan. Um, the United States is on the on the cusp of of pulling its last troops out of Afghanistan. Your view on on the president's decision uh but the only caveat to the question is, if you advocated for, if you're going to say we stay in, uh, what what would you change about our policy if, if it was to stay in Afghanistan? Here's the thing. I don't think we need a huge number of troops in Afghanistan, but I think pulling all of them out is a mistake. Uh, look, we still have troops in Germany. World War II ended 75 years ago. We still have troops in Germany. We still have troops in South Korea. In the places where we've had major conflicts over over the decades, we maintain troops there as a symbol of our resolve to not have those places go backwards. I think in Afghanistan, allowing the Taliban to have free reign there without any risk um, of retaliation by American troops leaves us vulnerable to the very same thing that happened that led to 9-11 and have that become a terrorist training center um, for the Middle East and for other parts of the world. So I don't disagree with the fact that it's time to bring most of our troops home. But if we still have troops in Germany and we still have troops in South Korea, it doesn't seem to me to be unreasonable to say that we have some small number of troops there um, to attempt to keep the Taliban honest. Well, oh, oh, Governor, I would just push back on that and, and saying in Germany and South Korea, both functioning democracies where our troops there actually help protect them from outside invaders. The, the Afghans can't get Afghanistan right. So I guess the, the thought is that what are a few thousand American troops going to do that the Afghani government can't do, uh, you know, other than become targets. But again, well, Jared, I hear what you're saying, but let me just add this before Rich jumps in, which is we're going to find out. Okay, we're going to find out. And and if we have a reemergence of Al-Qaeda or some other type of group like that that's using Afghanistan as a training and launching off center, then you and I can get back on the uh, on the podcast and we can talk about whether those troops would have made a difference or not. But the but but we're going to watch now and see um, what's going to happen. And and I, I, I think that while you're right, that Germany 75 years later, is now a functioning democracy. It wasn't in 1945, 1950, when we kept troops there. Um, so it took Germany a little while to come around. We had Germany divided, right, by the Cold War. We still had troops there when they were reunited after the Cold War was over. 
you know, I do think that there are, I understand the distinction you're making and it's, and I think an intellectually honest distinction, but I think that's looking at it from a today perspective of what Germany and South Korea are today, not what they were when um, those conflicts ended. Rich, anything you want to add on this topic or? Uh, well, I- no, I, I tend to agree with the governor on this. Uh, I think that it's a terrible decision to pull out uh, precipitously. Um, and we already have top generals that are warning that we're likely to see a civil war or worse very quickly. Um, I think uh, the 1990s will be calling uh, very soon, and, and that did not work out well for U.S. national security. Um, governor, I, I, I do want to come back a little bit into the national uh, politics discussion. Um, you, you said that you have been friends and known Joe Biden for a long time. Uh, I'm curious your views on the vice president. She's gotten a lot of attention recently on the border issues, et cetera. Obviously, potentially could be the nominee for the party come 2024. Uh, how do you rate how the vice president been doing? Well, I was never impressed with her when she was in the Senate. So uh, it's it's not going to be surprising to hear that I'm not impressed with her now. Um, you know, I just don't think there's a whole lot there. I think that's why she did very poorly in the presidential race. Um, and, and, and so look, I, I, it wouldn't have been who I would have picked if I were Joe Biden, um, as vice president, but you know, when you're the nominee, you get to make the choice. So I don't think she brings a whole lot to the table. Um, and I think there's a lot of other democratic women who would have been, cause he committed to picking a woman. Um, that was his commitment. So I think there's a lot of other democratic women who could have been significantly better vice presidents than Kamala Harris. Who, who would you have picked, Governor? If you- oh, well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Why am I going to help the Democrats? Also, if I like the person, an endorsement from me for a Democratic woman would end her career. <laughs> so who wants to do that to the somebody I actually <laughs> like and want to see be a positive voice in national politics for a while? So I'll I'll, I'll respectfully pass on that one. Gary. Okay. As, as we transition to our lightning rounds, the, the obvious question the obvious question that that people want to know is: uh, are, are you going to run for president? I think that's the obvious question that I'm not going to answer. <laughs> uh, because- because I haven't decided. I honestly have not decided. Um, look, I, I'm 58 years old. I'm not ready to retire. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not going to run for president for the experience. I've already had the experience of running for president. So it'll have to be that I believe that I've got something that's unique to offer, that I'm the best person for the job, that there's a pathway to victory, and that my family supports me. If the answer to all four of those questions after the 2022 elections is yes, then I'll run. If the answer to any one of those four questions is no, then I won't. And the proof of my honesty in that is there are lots of people who wanted me to run in 2012. And when I didn't think I was ready, I said, I'm not ready and I'm not running. Despite the fact that the timing then politically might have been very advantageous for me. Um, 2016, I thought I was ready when perhaps the timing wasn't as politically advantageous and it didn't work out well, but I ran. So I'll make this decision on the merits, Richard, um, and I'll make it when we get to 2022 because, believe me, I don't have a clue as to what 2022 is going to look like. Um, We're just all hoping to get through 2021 without any reemergence of COVID-19 and get our lives back to normal. The one good thing that I saw this past weekend was I'm on the board of directors of the New York Mets, and um, and I and I saw on uh, Saturday thirty thousand people back in City Field to see Jacob Degrom pitch. It felt like summer in America for the first time in a while, and that was a really good feeling. 
Governor, I was going to ask you about that. I grew up a Yankee fan, but I don't dislike the Mets. Uh, okay. What is it, what is the new ownership group like? Oh, the group is Stephen Alex I'd- Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very small group. Um, but look, I, I, I'm I'm biased about this because Stephen Alex have been friends of mine and Mary Pat's for over a dozen years now. But he is an extraordinarily bright, successful, funny, um, interesting guy. And um, I think the world is Steve, uh, and and I he's a Mets fan. He's been a Mets fan his whole life, so it's a dream come true for him to own the team that he rooted for growing up. And he asked me to be on the board. Um, for me, I've been rooting for the Mets since I was six years old. Went to my first game in 1968, and um, and so for me, it's a dream come true also. So Steve's a great guy, and I am confident that within his time frame of five years. He's going to bring a World Series championship to uh, to Queens. Wow! All right, <laughs> that's a bold there prediction. Go. There it is. Mark, right. that one is. On the, mark that one on the steal, podcast. You'll have, to, you'll have to steal it from my <laughs> cubbies. Uh, but, but, but that doesn't that doesn't look that that difficult at the moment. Uh, we we always ask a guest if you have a favorite Yiddish word that you've picked up over your career. Okay, look, now I grew up. You know, Richard, where are you from? I'm from Chicago. Okay. But we don't hold and it against Jared, him. Jared, are you from Brooklyn? Uh, originally from oh. Long Island, but of, of Brooklyn right. stock. So, so, you know, I grew up in Livingston, New Jersey, which, which was yep. um, not a majority Jewish town, but a plurality Jewish town. In other words, I went to more bar and bat mitzvahs in my 13-year-old year than I have fingers and toes to count, literally. So I picked up a lot of words over the years. I did get a tip from someone that you were going to ask this question, and I was trying to decide between my two favorite words, and I've decided that I can't decide between the two of them. So I'm going to give you both. Great. and schmuck. By the way, those are both great, and they go together. And this, and this is now this is now TVMA. I couldn't apart. I just oh, couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Governor, do you have a favorite Jewish food? Uh, matzo ball soup. Do you have it like oh, from a particular I, place or I, just any of From Tabachniks in Livingston, New Jersey, a great um, Jewish deli in Livingston, New Jersey. Tabachniks, um, they have extraordinary matzo ball soup, the best I've ever tasted. And you can get them at any freezer aisle in the yeah, Chicagoland area. That's wonderful. Uh, what uh, is your favorite Jersey beach? Well, it's where I, I have a beach house now. It's it's um, it's Bayhead, New Jersey, in Northern Ocean County. Um, my wife and I bought a house there after I left office, and it is now my favorite place at the Jersey Shore. Fantastic. Former Governor Chris Christie, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us, and we look forward to reading the book, which is out. Uh, is it out? It'll be out November 16th. Okay. little tease this week. But it'll be out on November 16th, uh, Simon & Schuster. Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Rich wanted to hear me say that out loud. Yeah, Jared, Jared, Jared I mean, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Well done. I, read that. I may have to do voiceover in the audiobook, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Governor. We really appreciate Fellas, it. Thank Governor. you. I really enjoyed it. If you ever want me back, give me a call. Thanks Absolutely. That's great. Wow, that was fantastic, Rich. And I got to tell you, that is the kind of common sense, uh, no BS interaction I love to hear from politicians of any party, and particularly Republicans who have become so dogmatic of late. And it's great to hear Governor Chris Christie uh, talk, call, call those balls and strikes like he sees them. 
Well, I think he actually sounds like most Republicans I know and talk to. Uh, Straight Talk Express is back. Uh, I liked it as well. It was a great conversation. You know, we didn't ask him his favorite Springsteen song or album. That's that's bad on us. I know you all want to know. Maybe we'll we'll get that from him after the show. Maybe if you come visit us on Clubhouse or something, we'll talk about it if we find out. Maybe when we have him back, uh, we'll ask him as well. Jared, great show. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. If you have comments, questions, show ideas, and tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.